they just sort of understand the culture of this church. So it's just good to not have to like give a million disclaimers. That's what I'm, that's what's great about today. I don't have to give a bunch of disclaimers. Um, I do want to say just very briefly, I believe so much in what you're doing. I believe in the way that you're doing it, the way that you're being the church. It's so important not only for DC, but for the kingdom and for the world, the kind of example really that God is, is carving out. Because I really do believe that what's happening here is a model. And even for me, um, I'm, right now I'm kind of itinerant speaking and writing full time. But when I think about what it would look like to plant a church if I ever did so again, this is exactly the kind of place that I, I would dream about. So uh, I just, you know, not that you take it for granted, but don't take this for granted. This is really, really special what you have here. And if you've never been here before or you're new or whatever, hey, I'm n- nobody, I'm, this is not like some strategic advertisement. Like seriously, this is the real deal what's happening here. You, you should come back. Um, and if you hate the sermon, that's fine because I won't be here. And uh, that's the great thing about being a guest speaker in general. You know, I can just come in and just say a lot of things. <laughs> I really can. I don't have to live with the fallout, you know, whatever. It's like, so I would just encourage you that if anything I say ministers to you, if you want to tell me that later, that's great. But just if anything lands poorly, if you get really upset, make sure. I, I know Pastor Kevin would love to have coffee just to talk about that at length, you know. So make sure you can direct any, any criticism towards him. Um, <laughs> We're going to Genesis chapter 3 in just a couple moments. Let's just take a a minute, if you don't mind, maybe just to close our eyes first. And it's a big series. These are big ideas. But I really, um, I want us to just find a real quiet, still place so that these big ideas in a world right now that feels so large and overwhelming, we can carve out space for the still, small voice where everything becomes much more tailored and personal. So, um, Spirit of God, Spirit of grace, Spirit of love, Spirit of truth, we welcome you. Already you're here. Of course you're here. Whenever we're gathered uh, in the name of Jesus the Son. But we just want to very intentionally right now just to, um, to welcome you and to say that we're so pleased that you would meet with us in a space like this. You're so faithful to do that. We come into this place now, Lord, um, bringing all kinds of things, bringing all kinds of anxieties, all kinds of tension, sin, disobedience, questions, so much heaviness in the world, so much heaviness in the city, and we're not even a little bit detached from that. We've come into this place carrying all kinds of things. But we take this moment now, Spirit of Truth, to lay all of this at your feet and to open our hands, and open our hearts, to let go of any preconceived expectations of what this time is supposed to look like, to let go momentarily of all the other things that have been pressing on us and to ask us, Spirit, would you address us? Would you speak to us? You know the deepest desires of our hearts you know the things that we need that we don't know that we need that we don't know how to articulate that we need oh god that you would speak into our deep and our broken places and that you would make yourself known now through the proclamation of your word we're listening lord speak we're sons and daughters who are listening in the name of the father the son the holy spirit amen genesis chapter three so as i understand the trajectory of the series that you're in you learned the last couple weeks that in the beginning everything was awesome. 
God created everything to be good. Um, that is always the start of any and all Christian theology is a good God who created all things to be good. Uh, sin is not the beginning of the story. I'm glad it's a couple weeks into this, uh, into this big series to talk about the fall because, you know, they may not choose to do this consciously, but a lot of churches actually start with the fall. <laughs> Never start with the fall. I mean this. Entire theological systems are messed up because they start with the fall rather than starting with creation. And the fact that God creates the world good, that he creates us good, that he creates um, the, the world to, to be good is always the starting point for any and all Christian theology. So that's, that's the right place, that God creates a world that's beautiful and that we are created in the image of God and nothing changes that. We're going to get in the next few minutes into some of the things that distort that image but even if the image of God in us is distorted it is never ever lost all humans are created in the image of God and that just simply cannot be changed so I'm glad you started where you did but I'm gonna tell this like you don't know any of this see after God creates everything good things kind of took a, a left turn <laughs> see and uh, I don't know why that hit me funny it didn't hit you funny at all it's like things everything was great and then not so great Today we really get in the not so great. So Genesis chapter 3. Do we have that for the screen? I didn't give you any scriptures. If not, I can just read it from here. So beginning verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be, listen to this, like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves they then heard the sound of the Lord God walk in the garden in the time of the evening breeze and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees from the garden but the Lord God called to the man and said to him where are you he said I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself he said who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, <laughs> it still hits me funny every time, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. Then the serpent tricked me, and I ate. That's when the Lord God says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to the man, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. 
and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. Then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to the guard the way of the tree of life. The word of the Lord. So we... Um, so this is the story of the fall, and for as much as I'm not normally a person to give points for a sermon per se, I guess it's sort of like that, I want to give you just a handful of statements at least that hopefully will make this a little more accessible or kind of guide us along the way. And that first simple statement really is this, at the heart of the fall, this is really a story about playing God. The fall really is all about playing God. I don't know what your concept of sin is know what your concept of evil is this may mess with it but in the biblical narrative uh, the command here in the garden is you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil note that it is not the tree of evil the way I heard this story growing up I would have thought God says don't eat the evil tree because if you eat of the evil tree you will become evil but that's not the case the tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil it's a tree of judgment this is not about naughtiness at the end of the day the root of evil in the story of scripture and the story of each of our lives come down to this the lie that the serpent tells is that if you will eat this tree you will become like God is you will know in the way that God knows and if we, if we take God's position, if we play God, we cannot need God. It's impossible to need God and to play God at the same time. So, and again, for a long time, when, when this first began to open my eyes, like this shifted a lot of things in my life and theology to come to see this scripture gen, uh, the, the way that I do now. Because I don't know, I, used, I think a lot of us may have even come from environments where judgment, playing God, is actually kind of a virtuous thing it's good to play God it's good to make all kinds of judgments that can even seem righteous and spiritual when in fact judgment here is the root of, of, of all sin what is this about I, I mean for me um, there, there's a lot that's going on here but part of what I, what I think is so insidious about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil there's nothing more intoxicating in the world than being right Everybody wants to be right. Everybody wants to know. And the minute we begin to step into that space to where we think that we know, so that instead of being contingent creatures, instead of being dependent creatures, we're living out of our own will, we're living out of our own understanding, we're living out of our own resources. This is where the story goes awry. It all starts with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This thing of playing God. Um, this kind of cuts in all directions, really. 
uh, th- th- this thing of judgment. Judgment is at root, uh, the word for judgment has to do with separating. It has to do with separating. Now, of course, to a point, um, we all have to make judgments. We have to make decisions. It's not about having opinions. But judgment is all about separating. Judgment is all about, uh, you know, Jesus talks about how, for example, only God, his Father, is able to separate the sheep from the goats. Only God is able ultimately to separate um, the wheat from the weeds. Only God can do this. But the problem is we're always kind of aspiring to take God's job and to sort for God, to separate for God, to do this based out of our own understanding. And it always leads us to, to really, really dark places. We're, we're not, we weren't built for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We were designed to be dependent creatures, not to operate out of our own sense of resources, out of our own intellectual capacity. There, there, there are some things that are too far for us, and yet we're all, when we start trying to do God's job, it's because, see, here's the thing. I think the popular misconception is a lot of us, if you, for example, right now are struggling with an addiction, so many people never grow or never get help when they're in an addiction because they think that somehow their addiction makes them so nasty to God. Like, I, like you feel so bad about yourself. There's so much shame. There's so much guilt. There's such a profound sense of being separated from God. The fact of the matter is, sin has never been a big deal for God. Like, God, God can deal with any kind of sin. There is never a reason that shame should keep you out of the presence of God. It, shame should never keep us out of God's presence. God knows how to deal with our shame. God knows how to deal with our pain. God knows how to deal with our addiction. God can handle the addiction. But here's the thing that we see over and over again, even with people who are addicted, right? What's, what's the one thing that will keep you from getting help if you're addicted? If you're not willing to admit that you have a problem. So long as you still insist that you're fine, so long that you insist that you're okay, so long as you're still making the judgment that everything is cool when it's not cool, then, then you're in no place to receive help. So it's not that anything that we do in that regard like, it keeps us so far from the presence of God, but when we, when we step into that space of doing God's job, thinking that we know right from wrong, thinking we, this is going to sound really, I don't want to get in like too deep this morning, but uh, Jacques Ellul, a French philosopher that I really love, has this book called The Subversion of Christianity where he talks about very provocatively how Christianity is not a moral system, that in a sense Christianity is against a moral system. And the first time I read that, it really messed with me, and then I, but sitting with it now years later, it makes so much more sense because I just think like inevitably so much of how we, the way that people groups are organized, the way the world is ordered, is everybody wants to have like, we all want to be on the inside and have somebody else as an outsider. It's just what we do. And so we come up with rules and regulations. We come up with systems to help us do that. If you have a system, then you don't need God. (laughs) If you have a system, if you have an ideology of who's in and who's out, who's right and who's left, you don't need God to make that work. You can make that work on your own. (laughs) God is not necessary in that scenario. And that's the problem with partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is that, once again, it presumes to take God's place. It presumes to take God's job. There's, I'll say it one more time. There's no way that we can need God so long as we're playing God. So at the end of the day, I don't know if this is making sense at all. Uh, I don't know if I'm over or under ex- cooking a thing right now. But like, I, I, just, I just really do believe like there is nothing that will keep us away from God's goodness, 
from growth, from change, from transformation, more than this thing of playing God. So I'll say more about that in a few minutes, and hopefully this will come back around. But yeah, that's really the first thing is this thing of how the fall is really about playing God. But I also want you to hear this. In this story of Scripture, the fall is necessary. The fall is really, really necessary. Um, Sometimes I've heard people teach about the fall as if God was, like, really taken off guard by all this. You know, like, man, created these people created them to be good i put this one tree in the garden and sure enough that's the tree they're gonna eat from jesus holy spirit gonna have to have a team meeting here <laughs> we got to review some footage some somebody dropped a ball what 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 are we gonna do guys what are you jesus i, I don't know holy spirit what do you what? have you ever thought maybe, maybe jesus will have to die and it becomes like this whole like um, the redemption and restoration is kind of plan B since we've messed things up and it caught God so off guard. Listen, a fifth grader could read the story of Genesis and know that the moment that God says, don't eat from this one tree, they're going to eat from the tree, <laughs> right? I mean, I'm not, I've never, I, I'm, I don't have biological children, but those of you are parents, I mean, is this not how it works? If you, tell, if you put out... If you put out 16 toys and you said, all right, now you can play with anyone except this one, which one are they going to want to play with? I mean, you know, it's, it's utterly inevitable. Now, what I'm not trying to do here, and this is a fine line, like the point is not to somehow say like, oh, sin's not a big deal, do what you want. But, you know, there's something about the fall that I think is just such a necessary part of the human journey. The, even though it's bad for them, I've never said anything quite like this in a sermon. I hope this isn't risky. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, even though it's wrong for them to take it, there is a real way that it awakens them. Now they know that they are naked. No, they weren't designed to have that kind of shame. God did not ordain that. But I still think there's something important that happens in that kind of awakening. There's something important that happens in that kind of consciousness. The fact of the matter is, we always learn more from getting it wrong than we do from getting it right always always everything important that we learn in life comes from doing it wrong i don't know why it is we don't talk about this in church more most everything significant that we've learned all the transformational stuff has come not from the success stories but from the stuff that we've got wrong and here it is in plain sight right in right in the in, in the front side of scripture that that through this awakening, through this becoming conscious, no, it's not good, but it's, it's necessary. My personal theory, I don't know how you feel about this. I mean, this is it like doctrine? But I believe that every person, like every human being, has to have some kind of a false story. Everybody has a false story. You absolutely must. Um, even for somebody like me. Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, of course, for somebody like me. What am I saying? I wrote a book called How to Survive a Shipwreck. It's like shipwreck is a major part of my story now. But I've seen that like, even for people who grow up in hyper-churched environments, who like try to do it right from day one, be holy people, keep all the rules, mind the manners, follow the commandments, etc. at some point, somewhere down the line. And if you don't do it when you're 16, if you don't do it when you're 12, then you end up doing it at 40 or 45. But one way, one way or another, there's going to be a false story. There's going to be a time when you come to the end of yourself. It may or may not be a spectacular failure. For some of it is. For some of it is like, man, hitting bottom is, 
is hitting bottom. But I've known other people for whom, like, they didn't have some kind of spectacular failure in their life. They may have, again, been good religious people. And that's, again, part of what's so tricky about the tree, right, is that lots of people are eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and think it's good. Like, oh, no, I'm, I'm living, I'm keeping the commandments, I'm minding the rules, I'm doing a really good job. But then even if it's something small, even if it's something that's not visible to the outside world, they come to a place where they realize the life they built on a deep level is just not working for them. Soul is not fulfilled. Relationships aren't right. You come to a sense of like your own weakness. You come to a sense of your own frailty. That's actually really, really important. So I think everybody kind of has their own version of a fall. And it's, it's, it's necessary. It's necessary. Now, you know, again, I think part of the journey, especially like following Jesus, is we're not going to conscientiously like keep trying to fall over and over again. And yet I say that, and still even now, like, do you really ever get to a place where we don't fairly regularly need to be reminded of our own human weakness and frailty, come back to the end of ourselves and need God all over again? It just just keeps happening. I, I, I say this partly because I think it's just so important, because so long as you think of going back to this thing of shame again, I feel like for so many people, the, the, the fall, it's so like disastrous, and their own fall is so disastrous and dramatic, and it's so like, oh, I, you know, I don't, everybody, so many people feel like they're uniquely messed up, and I'm the one person in the world that's so broken that God doesn't know how to fix me. You are not that special. <laughs> Human brokenness is fairly routine, you know what I'm saying? We use the phrase original sin, and that has a lot to do with Augustine, and I'm not going to riff about all that, but... If I can just say that the kind of the way that I want to, how, whatever you believe about original sin, there's another way in which sin is actually not original at all, ever. There's only a handful of ways to do it. And even with technology, it, it only changes so much. Pride, anger, wrath, lust, greed, they're, they're really only a handful of things. And like, it's kind of, <laughs> I don't know why this is coming out so funny right now. It's kind of like in Forrest Gump, like, you know, there's, like, there's, a, there's a lot of different ways you can, like, make the shrimp, right? But it's like, you know, you can have shrimp gumbo, you can have you can buffalo shrimp, like, whatever. Like, it's still shrimp. Like, sin is just sin, and there, it's, it's never, I, I think it's just really important to get this. I'll never forget when I was at the worst moment of my life, meeting with the spiritual director. I was in San Diego, uh, California, sweet little nun, about four foot five like took me apart like a ninja she just like <laughs> unbelievable but I never will forget her telling me this she said um because I was I, that I was that was in the midst of my season of so much angst and pain and confusion and trying to figure out where I was and what I was doing and I'd already had some measure of like not super successful but I'd you know done things in ministry I remember her telling me because she knew like I'd uh, written my first book and she said Jonathan your greatest successes are like when a two-year-old comes into the kitchen and they show a drawing to their parents said that's what your book is like to God oh he puts it on the refrigerator <laughs> and it's beautiful it's beautiful to God but not because the painting is beautiful but because like your kid did it you know how that goes right like you I mean your, your, your child draws you a picture and the way you respond to a two-year-old oh you'd think Picasso did that oh this is amazing. This is all, you are such an artist. You know, it's like all, all that, and, and in a way, and you mean it, right? Because you're so proud, because like, that's your kid. But it relativizes things, right? That like, your life work, like your greatest stuff, like your book, your big contribution, whatever, like a two-year-old, that's your success. 
But then she said, your greatest failure, your greatest failures are like when a two-year-old soils their diaper. It's not especially surprising. God doesn't freak out. Oh, I don't know what to do with this. I've never smelled anything like this before. Oh, I'm horrified. Can you believe, Jesus, Spirit, can you believe? God again reconvene. Like, we don't know what to do about this one. No, 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 no. Uh, as much as our own fallenness and brokenness, to be clear, can have disastrous implications for the world. Like we can mess up the lives of our neighbors. That's important. I'll say more about that. We can't think that any form of human falling is too big of a deal to God. It's just not. It's just not. It's just not. It's routine. It's part of the journey. Everybody has to fall. Everybody has to wake up to their own frailty and fragility. Everybody has to come to the end of themselves. That's really important. So I'm just saying, like, if you're at a, I don't know where you are in your story right now, but if you're kind of in one of those places where you're really struggling with fallenness, please get some encouragement about just how old of a story this really is. You're not the first person to test your limits again and again. You're not the first person to have to learn the hard way. That happens a lot. God knows how to deal with this. And, and again, sometimes, I don't know. What I found actually, and I think this is the crucial difference, so tempted to get ahead of myself a little bit here. The, the whole thing about falling and fallenness, whether or not that becomes something constructive really has everything to do with whether or not you can really acknowledge that. If you can name it, if you can talk about it, can I quote the great Mr. Rogers here? I think it was Mr. Rogers who was attributed first to say that everything that's mentionable is manageable. He was a Presbyterian preacher, y'all. Anything that can be spoken about, anything that can be named, if we can acknowledge it, that, that can be dealt with. So never think that like the fall is more disastrous or more surprising than it really is. Falling is necessary. And, and I would even say that alongside of that, in my third little statement here, the fall, strangely enough, is the mercy of God. The fall is the mercy of God. This is a, there's a great Julian, uh, Julian of Norwich, who's a wonderful kind of medieval mystic, said that first creation then the fall, both are the mercy of God. Which the first time I heard that, just like, oh, it just hit me so sideways. Like, what is this Yoda-like <laughs> wisdom? But I get it now. I think I spent so much of my life trying not to fall. It wasn't until I had done some falling. Like, I get that, how built into the fall is something of the mercy of God. Because here's the thing. The moment that you hit rock bottom, the moment that you come to the end of yourself... This is when you're in a space now to become far more human, far more whole, far more than your, yourself. I, maybe this is speculative. I don't know. I feel like I could make a strong case for this. I personally believe that Adam and Eve are better off on the other side of the fall, that like as humans, we're better off on the other side of the fall than we even were like pre-fall. Because in the beginning, everything is all naivety. You know, everything is all just kind of like, oh, innocent or whatever, you know. You just don't... Uh, it's that, that place that children live uh, for, a, for a while, you know, like that sees just everything's just kind of innocent and whatever. Oh, there, but man, there's something about living some life and then experiencing the redemptive grace of God that just makes you richer and better and fuller. Always attention when I'm trying to communicate an idea like this. And it's funny how I'm, I'm working all this out in front of you, you know, as you can tell. Um, <laughs> The one thing that makes it so tricky is, of course, what I never want to do is 
like suggest then so like yeah so why not so so go out and like sin more so you can experience more mercy but this is an old problem right paul brings this up in the book of romans shall we continue to sin so that god's grace shall abound god forbid but here's the thing people will sometimes try that like you know how far can i push against the grace and mercy of god how much can i sin or whatever bottom line it just doesn't work and if you want to experiment with this you can experiment and you will simply find out this just does not work like to just perpetually like be a train wreck on purpose that's not the idea at all but yet there is this real way that like coming to the end of ourselves the way that that opens us up to the mercy of god sometimes i wonder if it's not unlike a person who i'm very close to right now who has a 10 uh, a 13 year old son a couple weeks ago he got really sick and um she was real sad because he was so sick like he was throwing up and it was awful and she hated him to be so sick but he's 13 and he's like super cool you know so like his mom can't hug him anymore like none of that he's like way beyond that he's into basketball and like wearing his you know his jordans and it's just like his whole scene and he's a small white kid he's a point card and it's like all just like everything's just like everything's so cool right now and um she said that when as much as she hated that he was sick that closetly that day that he was home from school was one of the best days she's had in a long time because like he was so sick like you let me rub his back and <laughs> i gotta like hold him and he liked it and he wanted to watch movies together like on the couch and i'm not trying to overly like anthropomorphize god or something but i really do wonder if in some ways if it's a little bit like that you know that like the ways that we're broken the ways that we're fallen actually creates a unique space for intimacy with god oh i get to care for you in these places i get to tend to you in these places you're gonna you need me now uh, you're gonna let me hold you close i really think there's something to that that even in the fall there's already kind of seeds of redemption there, there is mercy built into this story uh, simply put if you never fell you'd never know the mind-blowing universe-altering cosmos-destroying power of grace there's no other way to know that without falling and once we come to know the depth of god's extravagant mercy instead of naively cruising along thinking that we're better than we really are we come to know how really not good we are and yet that god loves us oh, that that's the revelation that changes the world right there so so really i believe this that, that that even the fall in a way is mercy there is mercy in the falling uh quick recommendation by the way richard Rohr, father richard Rohr wrote a beautiful book called falling upward i read that book when i uh, several years ago and i honestly felt like it saved my life to read it uh, when I did but he talks a lot about this about the mercy that's built into the fall I, I don't want to go on all day one last thing and this is where we're kind of land talking about playing God talking about the, how the fall is necessary how the fall is the mercy of God last thing I really want to deal with because I think this actually is and it's especially relevant for us right now I think this is the really dangerous part of the story because you know I, I, I've tried to like I feel like so many people just live with so much consciousness of shame it feels really important for me to emphasize that like you know God has made provision for our sin. God is not freaked out by your sin, that the mercy of God is wide. You know, mercy has been falling. All that's so important. But part and parcel of this story is it's not just about partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but notice the result. And hopefully this will make that first part make more sense. Maybe I should have done those together. When they partake of the tree, the first thing that happens then is when God comes along walking in the cool of the day like he always does, Adam, where are you? <laughs> Ooh, and he's hiding because now he's aware that that he's naked and all of this when he's confronted what did he say i laugh every time i read that verse 
yeah, well, you know, like, um, I, I wasn't going to eat the tree, but the, the woman that you gave me, she ate the tree. And, of course, you know, Eve's account is, well, the serpent gave me, you know, all of that. Starts blaming, starts scapegoating. That is always, the, that, 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 that is just at the heart of so much of what is broken in our world right now. It's really the heart of what sin is, blaming and scapegoating. That, that's part of what it is to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's part of what it is to play God in that way, right? Is that when we're in the driver's seat, when we think we can discern what's right and what's wrong, who's in and who's out, when we're living from that place, we always have someone else to blame. There's always a scapegoat. It's always somebody else's fault. And so here's the irony, right? Like for as a person who believes so much in the mercy of God, there's nothing that God can't forgive and that he can't forgive easily and there's nothing, no brokenness that you have to keep out of God's presence. This right here is the number one landmine. Like this is the thing that will most disrupt a spiritual life. Blaming and scapegoating. I mean, that, like the number one thing. I, there's not even a close second. <laughs> Blaming and scapegoating is the thing that will most keep us from spiritual change. Blaming and scapegoating is what will perpetuate so much brokenness within the world, among our neighbors. This, this, it's not my fault, it's somebody else's fault. Now, for us, truly, to blame in this way is as natural as breathing, you know? Like, I don't, like, for whom is it native to just, you know, own your own faults? We're all, everybody's good at blaming someone else for something. But there's a really powerful spiritual energy at work in all this. This is part of what makes, and this is the part for me that maybe makes sin so tricky and insidious, is that, and this has, been, this has changed in different points in my life. When I mean, when I was young, I used to be such a conservative person. I grew up in such a conservative environment. I mean, like, I, I grew up in environments where women didn't wear makeup or jewelry or pants. I mean, they wore dresses, if that should be clarified. <laughs> they just didn't wear pants. It's very strange. <laughs> Um, didn't go to the movies. Like, I grew up like, like, like with a lot of legalism, right? So you can imagine a culture like that. I mean, you know, everybody that wasn't part of our church was going to hell. Like, all kinds of people are going to hell. And that felt so righteous. And if you're, you know, honestly, it feels good to be part of the uniquely righteous people. That feels really good. It, feel, it feels good to have an us and a them. In fact, how can we know that we have in us if there's not a them. <laughs> like knowing who our enemy is, knowing who the bad guys are, that's so much of how whole cultures develop identities. How are nation states formed, right? It's always a story about how somebody gets expelled, somebody gets cast out, somebody's conquered in a war. Like this is the history of civilization. Um, <laughs> I love when I speak in broad generalities, but really like, Genesis 3 through, through 11 kind of says it all, is that you go from Adam and Eve scapegoating each other and the serpent in the garden, all that blame, to the Cain and Abel story, where Cain scapegoats his brother Abel and kills him. And from that point forward in the story, it's war and mayhem, all kind of springing from this one thing, all springing from the need to be right, and alongside that, the desire to cast blame on somebody else is any of that making sense but here's what's it's not making sense is it like, mm, yeah. well so unpack this a little further so 
whereas earlier in my life, I found this energy in conservative circles. And it is, in fact, a very spiritual energy. It's, it's very spiritual to be with people who are really energized about being right against the bad guys because in a very real sense, we're cleansing ourselves on someone else. It's a powerful energy. Now, I would say now that's a dark spiritual energy. I, I would even say a satanic spiritual energy. Here's something interesting. You notice in the book of Genesis that it never names the devil. It talks about a serpent, but there's no reference to Satan or the devil. The first time Satan appears in the Bible, like proper, is in the book of Job. And when Satan appears, the word in Hebrew is Satan comes into the court as the accuser. Satan is known as the one who accuses. Think about that. Now, like in the New Testament, 1 John, for example, says that God is love. If God is love, or John will talk about Jesus as the advocate with the Father. He pleads on our behalf. Satan, the contrast, is the accuser. In the same way that love is intrinsic to who God is. Love is not just who God is. Love is what God is. Accusation is intrinsic to who Satan is. Accusation, at its core, is demonic behavior. There is nothing more demonic than I ever do than to accuse, scapegoat, and blame. It is literally to live in imitation of of, of Satan. So now, I know this sermon is big and broad, and Pastor Kevin, I'm so sorry you have to clean up after this mess, maybe. (laughs) But part of what we're dealing with right now, even culturally, not trying to sound super spiritual about this, but given those kind of parameters, is we're dealing with like a lot of just the demonic unleashed culturally right now because it's 100% accusation and blame. And it's toxic in all directions. So, because I think what will happen for a lot of us who've been in those kind of conservative environments, then I got in environments that were much more hyper-progressive, had ideas that to this day I deeply believe in. Like, I, I want communities of justice and peace and mercy. Like, these are things that I believe in. But then all of a sudden, when you find out you're with a group of people who are right in a progressive way, and the conservatives become the Neanderthal bad guys, and we know who we are, we know our us because of them. How weird is this? We're eating of the same tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the same crack, y'all. It's the same crack. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) This is McDonald's and Burger King right here. This is just like, they're different franchises. But it's the same thing. It is the exact same thing. And part of what is like legitimately scary about this to me is that I live on the precipice of stepping back into that kind of accusation and blame, oh, about every 20 minutes. Because somebody's going to raise the question, well, yeah, but you still have to, still have to be able to discern between right and wrong to a point, right? You still got to make choices. Yes, you have to make choices, but here's what's so tricky, especially about where we are right now. To speak very personally, I I'm, I'm, promise I'm wrapping this thing up. To speak very, like from my own experience, right? Like, and I, not projecting on anybody else, give me a little grace as, 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 a, as a guest speaker here. Admittedly, given my Christian convictions, there are a lot of things happening culturally right now in terms of how we talk about immigrants, how we talk about refugees, how we talk about thing, people who are other, that is very disturbing to me. Because what I hear in that that's framed in language that is pragmatic and practical and this is necessary and this is just how the world is supposed to work but yet what I feel like comes in the guise of all that is what for me is 
can be really, really demonic behavior, like that, that, that tendency to, uh, to, to scapegoat somebody else. It's irrational. See, that's what happens is that, and that's why the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is so dangerous to us. Our own judgments blind us to the evil in ourselves. So if someone can blame another people group, if someone can blame the homosexuals, if someone can blame the Muslims, if someone can blame Mexicans, whoever them is, they get to go around feeling great about themselves because you never have to look inward. That judgment skewers the perspective. And yet, as I say that, and I legitimately am troubled and disconcerted by these things, here's what I find is my temptation every day, right? Is that the very moment I enter into that same kind of, I, I partake of that same tree, when I start to get high off of that same kind of energy. There's nothing that'll get you high more than being right. It is just better than any sort of, why are all these crack references coming up? And like, I don't mean this to be a whole thing. Like, boy, there's a lot of drug paraphernalia in this sermon. Like, I know about heavy drugs, but it's like, it's, but really, you know, like, they're so, oh, being right. And so then what happens is that as a person who thinks that these folks are wrong to scapegoat these people, then I start to become self-righteous because I'm scapegoating them. Oh. And then I'm back in the same trap. And then I'm back, you, do you hear what I'm saying? It's the same kind of bondage. It gets you in the same kind of place. Because then we start irrationally, playing. so then, you, then all the problems of the world are fundamentalist Christians, those stupid fundamentalist Christians. I'm glad I'm not like them. From Obama to Trump, every conceivable thing that's ever happened, you've all known people like that. It's like, you know, it wasn't alive during the Kennedy assassination, but I think somehow it was his fault. You know, it like becomes this irrational blame. It's just not helpful. And so what I have to do, yes, we have to make critical decisions about how we think, and I, but here's what I have to do for me personally. The only antidote to all that really is prayer. It just really is. And, and prayer for me is something like, I have to take a bath every day from my social media like you know like you just like if you're working at a in a field or in a plant work 12 hours and come out like whatever and you get to take a shower that's what it's like for me these days i have to take a bath i have to pray because what i find is that kind of stuff gets hooks inside of me that just aren't good and, and we're and, and you know the litmus test because jesus teaches us to pray for our enemies is i i know i have to pray for people who think differently than i am and if I start to pray for them and I don't want to or I feel resistance, like, okay, now I know that this is where this is really unhealthy. This is not just me thinking they're wrong about this thing. I'm entering into that kind of blaming and scapegoating. I don't have permission to judge in that way. I don't have permission to scapegoat. I don't have permission to cast anybody out. Is that making any kind of sense? I really do have to be done. I don't even know how long I've talked now. I want us to pray. And I just want to, uh, to make this more, uh, just a little more personal and um, practical and intimate, I just want to invite you now, if you would, ah, goodness, I feel like I've said, well, it's such a big, all this meta-narrative stuff. Thanks, Kevin. It's all his fault. <laughs> it's all his fault. You invited me into this series with these big ideas. It's his fault the sermon's long and rambling. But I'd love for us to just uh, to close our eyes for a moment, and I want it to... I want us just to take a moment, first of all, knowing that we're safe and we're loved and we're in God's presence. Could we just take a minute now to 
anything that has been in the darkness, any shame that you have carried. Why don't we just take a moment just to really invite the Holy Spirit into the midst of that. And I don't want you to linger here too long, but I want you to consciously, even now with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, maybe even bring to mind for a moment, what is it, even from this week, that's a deep source of shame? Where is it that you've given in to anger or rage or blame? Where is it that you've given in to pride or to lust? Where is it? What are, what are the things that you're embarrassed about? God, we just bring all of these things, all these ways that we're broken, all these ways that we've blown it. Very humbly, we bring these things into the light of your presence. And instead of playing God, instead of thinking that we know, instead of pretending that we're right, we just admit this morning, we are deeply broken people who are deeply in need of your help. We bring these things in the light of your presence now, ask you to cleanse us, asking you to forgive us. We call to our attention now the ways that we have entered into that scapegoating, blaming energy where we just spend a little bit too much time frothing at the mouth, feeling like we're right. And it can become so consuming, Lord. It, can, it blinds us to our own faults. It blinds us to the ways that we need your help. We bring those things into your presence as well. And we ask you once again, Lord Jesus, by your blood, that you would cleanse us, that you would forgive us, that once again you would just make our perspective right and clear and true as we prepare our hearts to come to the table. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Look up at me. Just before we're done, I'll, um, I just want to say this kind of as a way of walking away from all this. Something I don't feel like I said especially clear, but it feels like the right place to land. The way that the people of God bring change in the world. I think this is so important. The way that we lead, the way that we bring transformation to communities, the way that we bring transformation to our own lives always comes from a place of repentance. People of God always lead through repentance. This is why it becomes so important that we don't enter into the scapegoating, blaming thing, allow ourselves to be consumed by that. Because the moment that we start blaming someone else entirely for all the problems of the world, we stop repenting. We stop looking at our own stuff. And that is the way that people of God bring meaningful change. We own our own messes. We admit where we're wrong. And we always start. Repentance always looks like us doing what we can to make it right in our own lives. That's part of what can feel so good for me about blaming whoever I perceive it to be at the other side at any given place in my life. Is that then, well, as long as I think the right things, as long as I have the right ideology, I don't have to deal with my own thing. I don't have to really deal with my stuff because I'm on the right side. At least I don't think like those idiots, even if my life isn't doing anything that's beautiful or constructive or changing the world. You know what I'm saying? Let's be a people who lead from our repentance, from our humility, from our vulnerability. God bless you guys.